Now those who worship with us regularly are aware that my custom is to preach through a biblical book. If you've looked at the bulletin this morning, uh, you can see we've been in Hebrews all year and we are going to continue in Hebrews to the end of June. It is my custom rather than to speak on topics that appear in scripture it's, it's important that I think we move through biblical books uh, systematically and chronologically. And the reason for this is simple. I don't trust myself. And I mean that seriously. If left to my own devices, I will preach on those things I am most comfortable with. Those things I am most familiar with. Those portions of scripture that just make me feel good. But by forcing myself to preach through a biblical book in order, I don't get to set the agenda. I don't get to choose what I talk about. Now even when we work our way through a biblical book, it often becomes necessary to give less attention to certain portions and more attention to others simply because we're dealing with a time frame. You don't want me in Hebrews, I don't think, for the entire year. It's enough that we're going for half the year. Now I share all of this with you this morning Because I want you to know that I was tempted to skip past this portion in Hebrews that deals with Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek, as you will soon find out, is a rather obscure biblical figure. We don't know a lot about Melchizedek. And yet it's clear that the author of Hebrews includes Melchizedek as a primary way of explaining what Jesus purposes to do. Melchizedek is an example. He is a type. He is a model of what Jesus purposes to do for us. Melchizedek, if you've been following with us, was referenced in Hebrews 5. And I made no explanation for that reference. Again, last Sunday, when we were in Hebrews 6, you saw Melchizedek's name again. I made no mention of it. But here in Hebrews 7, the comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek occupies an entire chapter. And it would have been too conspicuous for me to just jump to chapter 8. We must deal with Melchizedek. So who is this mysterious figure? Who is Melchizedek and what's so important about him? The responses we get from scholars and biblical commentators are many and varied. There isn't a universal agreed upon understanding of who Melchizedek is. But let me jump to my understanding of who he is from the scripture. Melchizedek was a historical figure. He was a real person who served as a type for Christ. And when I say a type, I'm referring to biblical typology. What is biblical typology? I don't know if that's something you've ever heard. Biblical typology is when something is introduced in the earlier covenant, the Old Testament, for the purpose of preparing our understanding of the fulfilled version for the new covenant. Let me just give you one of the most obvious and familiar examples of biblical typology. 
The sacrificial system in the Old Testament is a type. It's a part of biblical typology. The sacrificial system, in particular the Passover lamb, is a type representing the antitype, which is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. So the whole purpose of the Passover lamb is to prepare our understanding for what Jesus does on the cross. If we've never read our Old Testament, if we have no working familiarity uh, with, with the Torah, we will struggle to understand what it means for God to live among us and to die in our place on the cross. The Passover lamb is a type, and Jesus is the fulfillment or the antitype. So how do we know that Melchizedek is a type? For Christ. Well, let's go back to the original reference for Melchizedek, which you'll find in Genesis chapter 14. You don't need to look it up if you don't want to. I've got it here and it will be up on the screen. Genesis 14, after Abram's return from the defeat of Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, I'm going to avoid the temptation to talk about the merit of giving a tenth of everything to your priest. But never mind, we'll move along. This is the first reference, Genesis 14, this is the first reference to Melchizedek in Scripture. He seemingly comes out of nowhere to greet Abram like he's an old friend. And you never hear from Melchizedek again for the rest of the book of Genesis. But we learn some things about him in this brief appearance. We learn he's king of Salem. We also learn that he is a priest of God Most High. And this is an important connection. You have many kings in the Old Testament and many priests in the Old Testament. But it's not something usual for the king to be the priest and for the priest to be the king. So this is one of the ways he becomes a type for Christ. Again, Melchizedek pronounces a blessing over Abraham, who in turn gives a tenth from his wealth. So, out of nowhere, we hear of Melchizedek. And do you know how long you have to wait before you hear from Melchizedek again? Nearly 1,000 years passes. And King David is penning Psalm 110. A thousand years later, while he's writing Psalm 110, David writes of the coming Messiah, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know about you, but I think you should count it unusual that David, in writing such an important messianic psalm, would mention such an obscure figure like Melchizedek. It gets better. A thousand years after David, approximately, the author of Hebrews 
quotes Psalm 110 as he compares Melchizedek to Jesus. So what you have here in Scripture are references to Melchizedek in three very different places. Genesis, the Psalms, and the book of Hebrews. Each separated by about 1,000 years. It's hard to account for why David picks up this reference to Melchizedek. And by extension, it's hard to account for why the author of Hebrews picks up this reference from David. It's hard to account for this. Unless, unless the author of Genesis, the author of the Psalms, and the author of the book of Hebrews is one and the same. Now I know, humanly speaking, they have different authors, but this is what we profess in the Reformed tradition, that all of Scripture is God-breathed. That the Holy Spirit is behind every word in Scripture. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it's by God's eternal design that Melchizedek is introduced in Genesis as a type for the priesthood of Jesus. Why is this significant? It's significant because the dominant class of priesthood in the scripture is what? The Levitical priesthood. And to be a part of the Levitical priesthood, you had to be what? A Levite. You're a shy bunch. I know some of you knew that. To be in the Levitical priesthood, you had to be a Levite. Jesus was not a Levite. And the author of Hebrews points this out in verse 14. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. You'll remember the Lion of Judah. He was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The point being made is that Jesus is not made a priest according to his lineage. Jesus is made a priest according to his abilities and merit to function as our priest. The idea here is that the comparison between Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, that just like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king and a priest, not by lineage but by according to his merit and his ability. Well, why is that important? Well, remember the context. Remember, those of you who have been with us throughout Hebrews, remember why this book is being written. You had a large group of Jewish people who had professed faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. But in the first century, this was something that would make you be persecuted physically harmed. So you had Jews who had proclaimed allegiance to Jesus and they were now being physically harmed, some of them put to death because of their affiliation with Jesus. And so some of these Jewish Christians who identified themselves with Christianity, they were defecting. 
They were going back to Judaism. They were saying, this is too much. Let's just go back to the way we used to do things, according to the Levitical law. So the author of Hebrews wants to stop this. He wants to arrest this return to Judaism. So he wants to remind the readers of the shortfalls of the Levitical system. The shortfalls of the Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 18 and following. The author basically says the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical system and all of its elements, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The Levitical system with its priests, with its law, with its ceremonies, it could not save anyone. And this is a huge problem. Why? The whole function of the priesthood is to bring people to God. Why do you have a priesthood in the first place? What's the purpose? You have a priesthood because the priests function to bring the people into the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews is saying the Levitical system didn't do this. It failed to bring people to God in any meaningful or lasting way. So the grand point being made is that a better version of the priesthood has come. A better Melchizedek has come. Jesus Christ is able to bring people to God. Dear friends, we live in a day and age where people say there's many roads to the top of the same mountain. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can bring you to God. No human priest, no human preacher, no religious ceremony. You need Jesus Christ and Him alone to bring you to God. Look at verses 24 and 25 to see the nature of His priesthood. He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. I love that. It's not a partial saving. It's not a prompting. It's like, here, I'm going to point you in the right direction and you have to do the rest. You have to figure it out. No. He is able to save to the uttermost. He does all the saving. Those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know a Levitical priest began their career at age 25? I found that interesting because I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister when I was 25 years of age. So as a Levitical priest, you begin at age 25. Here's the neat thing. They retired their priests at age 50. I'm thinking, I only have seven more years to go on this model. I like this. It doesn't work like that in the Presbyterian system. Melchizedek, by contrast, was a priest without term. So Melchizedek, he, we don't know when he, it says, we don't know when he started as a priest. We don't know when he ended as a priest. Melchizedek has no fixed term to his priesthood. His priesthood 
Or Jesus not only has a term that's without end or without term, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because Jesus continues forever. Here's the important part for us. Jesus is able to make personal intercession and permanent intercession for you and for me. You go to a preacher and he can help you for that moment. But he can't bring you into the presence of God. You need Jesus for that. But you go to Jesus and he can help you at any and every moment. And he is always available. One of the things that's different between Canada where I was raised and the Bahamas where I now reside is things aren't open as long in the Bahamas. In Canada, you could always get access to a food store 24 hours a day. Many restaurants 24 hours a day. You miss that when you need something and you don't have access to it. Well, the author of Hebrews wants you to know you will always have access to Jesus. You wake up in the middle of the night and your soul is troubled by something, you have access to Jesus at that moment. 24 hours a day, Jesus Christ is able to bring people to God. Jesus is forever in a position to bring people to God. Now, I, I want to illustrate this. And when I moved from Canada to the Bahamas, my Canadian friends warned me, don't use hockey illustrations. No one likes hockey in the Bahamas. Don't talk about hockey. But I, I need to give this illustration because I think it helps us understand what Jesus does. So, and, and if you know, this might be a good time to Google some of the terminology here. When I lived in Toronto, Canada, one of the things I was blessed to be able to do is I could attend in person the games of my favorite hockey team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Don't Google Toronto Maple Leafs. They're in last place. They're doing terrible. But there was a time when they were pretty good and I was blessed to be able to watch them play. Now, on one occasion, I had a member in my church who is a senior member of the sports media. I mean, he was, he was the legend of sports media in Toronto. And this friend of mine in the congregation, he was also a friend of the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So my friend had a standing invitation that whenever he attended a Toronto Maple Leaf game, he had access to what was called the owner's lounge. So my friend invites me to go with him, and I get to go to the owner's lounge. Now the owner's lounge, you can imagine, has some serious security out front. I mean, these, these were police officers of, of the highest caliber, making sure that no unauthorized persons got in the owner's lounge. I don't know if you've ever been in a room like this. I haven't been in too many in my life. But it was sheer opulence. Sheer opulence. It was the most expensive furniture I had ever seen. It was the best artwork. Well, I think it was the best. It was mostly sports artwork. But it was, it was awesome. And it was the best food and wine money could buy. Now I need to tell you, when I was in the owner's lounge, I was nervous about straying too far from my friend. 
Remember, he was my ticket to be inside. I was acutely aware that I did not belong in this room with these people. These, these folks were of another class. And I did not belong there, but I was invited to accompany my friend. Without my friend's presence, I had no right to be in the lounge. Without my friend being present next to me, I had no access to the unlimited quantities of filet mignon that I was currently enjoying. I don't know if it's rude to have more than one steak in a sitting, but they, they were only six ounces and so I had more than one. Now, the next part's kind of sad, but my friend was a Christian, so it's not entirely sad. Not long after my visit to the owner's lounge, my friend, the sports media giant, he had a severe heart attack at home and died. So I was sad because I lost a friend, I lost a member of my church, so we grieved that. But the other reality is I was never going to get in that lounge again. <laughs> My only way into the owner's lounge was that, that friend. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage us. He wants us to know that our access to the throne of God is permanent. And it's permanent because Jesus always lives. Even if he dies, he lives again. And he's always able to make intercession for you and for me. Let me phrase this in a negative way. We cannot access the storehouse of God's blessings apart from Jesus. We cannot access the storehouse of God's blessings apart from Jesus. What does that mean? It means your morality won't get you in. Don't trust in your own morality to get into heaven. It won't work. Your sincere efforts won't get you in. Your worldly achievements, your credentials, your awards won't get you in. Your engagement in religious ceremonies won't get you in. The only way to access the storehouse of God's blessings is by clinging to Jesus, who always lives to make intercession for us. I don't want you to miss your obligation in this. The forgiveness you obtain and the help you receive is not automatically given. The access to God and the storehouse of His blessings, verse 25, are for those who draw near to God through Christ. That's all you need to do. You don't need to be morally perfect and all together. You don't need to have this tremendous track record, this wonderful resume. All you need to be able to do is say, I'm drawing near to God through the merit of my priest. Jesus Christ. It's not my merit that gets me in the owner's lounge. It's his merit. It's vital that we learn how to connect to Jesus. 
that we learn how to connect to Jesus moment by moment. Now it's always, I'm always a bit nervous saying this on Sunday morning because it's, it's really good that you came this morning. But it's also important to know that you're connecting to Jesus for an hour or so on Sunday morning. That's not enough. Nor is it enough, and again, I, I, I don't want to be unkind to anyone here, but I'm just stating things as I see them. It's not enough to connect to Jesus on a daily basis for that hour or so in the morning as a devotional. It's not enough for us to compartmentalize when we connect to Jesus. If you want to benefit from God's presence and God's blessings all day long, and I hope you do, I do, I want God's blessings every minute of the day, then I need to cling to Jesus every minute of the day. It can't be a Sunday thing. It can't be a first thing in the morning only thing. It has to be all day long. Can you imagine what would have happened if I tried to get into the Toronto Maple Leafs owner's lounge the very next day without the presence of my friend? Hello, please let me in. I was here yesterday. You remember me. I remember you. Remember I was in here? Will you let me in? He won't let me in. He won't let me in because I'm not with my friend. Can you imagine me saying, okay, don't worry about letting me in. Can you just have someone put one of those filet mignons on a plate for me? And just pass out a plate of filet mignon and I'll be on my way. I don't need to get inside. Just give me what you have in there. It doesn't matter that I was admitted in the lounge a day earlier. Without the presence of my friend, I can't get in. Without the presence of my friend, I won't be served the wonderful things I enjoyed only a day earlier. How that translates in our spiritual life, it goes like this. Your clinging to Jesus today will help you today. And your clinging to Jesus today, this is the important part, will not help you tomorrow. We shouldn't come to church saying, I'm going to charge my batteries for the week. It doesn't work like that. You come to church and you cling to Jesus today for today's benefits. If you want God's benefits tomorrow, you've got to cling to Jesus tomorrow. Be at His side tomorrow. And the good news of Scripture says Jesus always stands ready to help you. He always stands ready to bless you. He always stands ready to usher you into the presence of God Almighty. So if you forget everything else I've said, if you forget who Melchizedek is, and the three references in Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews, and a thousand years, if you forget all that just remember this. To be connected to God and to receive the blessings from His hand, you need to be connected to Jesus. That's not a once a week thing. That's not even a once a day thing. Cling to Jesus all day long and He will bless you all day long. Amen.